right. Yes. Are we ready for the jury? Yes. Okay. Sir, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Can you count to five for me? One, two, three, four, five. I'm just trying to get you on the big screen. We're waiting for the jury. Just give us a minute, okay, sir? Thank you. You can be seated. All right, your next witness. Uh, we called Dr. Colbert. All right, sir, if you could raise your right hand. Do you swear for him to tell the truth under penalty of law? Yes. Your Honor, I would just object that Dr. Colbert appears to have a stack of documents right in front of him. All right, sir, you can put your hand down. And any documents you have, if you could put them away and just testify from your memory. Okay, sir? Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, your question. Good morning, Dr. Colbert. Morning. Could you please state your full name for the record? David Allen Colbert. And what is your profession? I'm a plastic and hand surgeon. And how long have you been a plastic and hand surgeon? Been in practice for 26 years. Where do you currently work? At Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. How long have you worked there? For the past 26 years. Do you know the plaintiff in this action, Johnny Depp? I do. And how do you know Mr. Depp? I had taken care of him when he had injured his hand. When did Mr. Depp become your patient? Sometime in March of 2015. And what type of treatment did you provide to Mr. Depp? He had a fracture of his finger with soft tissue loss. And so um, we reconstructed his finger. When did you perform, perform the first surgery on Mr. Depp's finger? I believe it was around March 20th of 2015. <laughs> And what was involved in that surgery, just briefly? Debreeding the devitalized tissue, putting a hypothenar skin graft, store some of the soft tissue loss that he had, and then also putting a pin in because he had a displaced distal phalanx fracture. What was the state of Mr. Depp's hand immediately after that surgery? I'm sorry, I think the audio cut out a little bit. Could you please repeat your answer? It, it was injured and um, had soft tissue loss and a fracture of his distal phalanx. And what type of cast was on Mr. Depp's hand after you performed that surgery? It was a plaster splint. 
And can you please describe to the jury what what a plaster splint would look like? So it's it's like a cast, but you don't want to put everything circumferential on it because of swelling after surgery. So I believe in Mr. Depp's case, it was like the two fingers. I think the third finger was the one that was operated on. So these two fingers, the third and fourth finger are together. And it's a splint with plaster on the top and on the bottom that goes um, around the hand uh, to protect it. How mobile was Mr. Depp's hand when it was in that cast? Well, he couldn't move his third and fourth fingers because of the bulkiness of the splint. Typically, postoperatively, it's a more bulkier splint right after the surgery. So it's uh, not very, um, it gets in the way. Could Mr. Depp grab someone with that cast on his hand? <clears throat> I could, I, he could attempt to grab someone. I don't know how successful he would be. He, he had his index finger free and his thumb free, but the other fingers were um, probably not being able to move. How long was the pin in Mr. Depp's finger? About 11 or 12 days. And how was the pin removed? It was removed under local anesthesia in my office. How long did you ultimately treat Mr. Depp for his hand injury? For several months. And why was that? It was a bad injury. Um, it required a few more little office procedures to clean up the tissue. He had an infection uh, as a result of the injury, so he had to be on antibiotics for some time until it finally completely healed. Do you recall when the infection developed? It was a few weeks after the surgery, and that's when I took out the pin. When was the last time that you saw Mr. Depp? Uh, sometime in 2015. I don't recall when. And when was the last time that you spoke to Mr. Depp? The same. Around 2015. Thank you, Dr. Colbert. All right, cross-examination. Good morning, Dr. Colbert. So you said that this plaster splint was put on on after surgery on March 20th.
And regardless of whether Mr. Depp could have grabbed someone with the hand with the cast on, he could have grabbed someone with the hand without the cast on, correct? Correct. Michelle, can you pull up Exhibit 400, please? This has been admitted, Your Honor. All right. Permission to publish? Yes. Yes, sir. Dr. Culver, I'm just going to ask Michelle here to just scroll through these pictures, and I'd ask you to take a look at them. Your Honor, I'm going to object for lack of foundation for these photographs. They're already in evidence. With respect to the questions to the witness. They're in evidence. Thank you. Michelle, if you could go back up to that. Stop right there. Is there anything about the cast that was put on Mr. Depp's hand on March 20th, 2015, that would have prevented him from doing this damage to Ms. Hurd's closet on March 23rd, 2015? Objection calls for speculation. Overruled. I mean, he had his other hand available. No further questions. Thank you. All right. Redirect. Dr. Culver, how many fingers were in the plaster portion of Mr. Depp's cast? At least two were. The third one and the fourth one. And why did you call? Because it's not fully, plaster doesn't go around the entire hand because you allow for swelling. So there's plaster to protect the fracture. So there's a little plaster on it, but it's on the top and the bottom, but it's not completely circumferential. So there's soft spots to it. And where are those soft spots located again? Usually we put a piece of plaster underneath the fingers and on top, and then the sides of the fingers, it's soft so that the fingers can swell after the surgery. Could Mr. Depp have hit someone with the hand that had the cast on it? He could have hit someone with it. It probably would have injured, damaged the cast. Did you ever notice any damage to Mr. Depp's cast when you treated him after the surgery? I don't recall. Nothing that comes to mind. Could Mr. Depp form a fist with the cast on? No. No further questions. Thank you, Dr. Kohler. All right. Thank you, sir. That completes your testimony. Thank you. All right. Your next witness. Plaintiff calls Richard Marks, Your Honor. Mr. Marks. Sorry, just a reminder. Hold on. Hold on. Just give us a second. Sir, you've already, just a reminder that you're still under oath. Okay, sir.
right. Morning, sir. Right. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Your Honor. Welcome back, Mr. Marks. Um, you've testified in this case previously, but would you just um, briefly remind the jury who you are? I'm uh, Richard Marks, and uh, I'm a uh, full-time entertainment transactional attorney. I make deals uh, every day for productions and for individuals. I'm in the trenches negotiating and then making sure the contracts reflect the deals. Um, and I'm very much distinguished from uh, the other side's expert who is not an attorney, who's not in the trenches making deals, is not in that day-to-day process. And are you familiar with the testimony of um, Catherine Arnold in this matter? Yes. Have you been asked to analyze that testimony and provide opinions in response? Yes. And generally, what are those opinions? Well, my, my opinions are that... Um, uh, she's very uh, slick and smooth, uh, but she's not an expert in deal-making. Uh, her assessment of damages is built on nothing, and it's wildly speculative. Are you familiar with Ms. Arnold's opinion that it's customary for an actor to renegotiate the fee for a subsequent picture option in a multi-picture contract when a film is successful? Yes, I heard that opinion. And are you also familiar with her testimony that under those circumstances, an actor will renegotiate a 50 to 100% increase in their salary for the next optional film? Yes, I heard her say that. Do you agree with those opinions? Absolutely not. Why not, sir? Well, what we're dealing with in this case is a test option agreement. And that's an, uh, an agreement uh, it's a multi-picture agreement, and it's the nightmare for people like me. You, The test is going to take place, let's say, for 10 actors the next morning at 9, and you have to fully negotiate a contract that might cover four movies and have it signed before they're allowed to test so that if they're chosen for the part, we have the full contract. There's no renegotiation. So you've got a contract for a multi-picture deal. It's usually a franchise, uh, and uh, you negotiate the first movie. And normally, if they get the part, they're the chosen one. Uh, they're the star's born moment, if you will. Uh, they get the part. Normally, their salary is um, uh, inflated from their normal salary because now they're going to play a character that could go on for four movies. In this case, uh, Ms. Hurd's first salary when she got the part was $450,000. If Warner Brothers and DC Comics decided to make a next movie, um, they could recast her. They had no obligation. All they had was an option. But if they did cast her up front that they had uh, agreed to more than double her salary, like two and a quarter times to get to the million dollars. Uh, these are large uh, bumps, if you will. They're, if an actor is on a series, say, they go, and they have five options, they go up in increments of 5%, 10%, 20%, not these multiples that you see in uh, uh, a test option agreement, 
And that's one of the reasons that they aren't renegotiated normally. They are in some instances, but not normally. What's the significance of the test part in a test option agreement? The test significance is that an established actor usually wouldn't test. They'd be offered the role. Ms. Hurd was in a group of actors that needed to be tested to see if the studio wanted to hire them. And then if they hired them, they would be locked up for potentially four movies at very lucrative increases. Because after Aquaman 1, she gets to a million dollars. Aquaman 2, she gets to two million dollars. And Aquaman 4, 3, excuse me, you get to four million dollars. These are unheard of bumps if you're going on a normal career and trying to increase your salary by increments. In your experience, what is customary for negotiations of multi-picture deals? Well, I think what happened in this case was customary for negotiation of multi-picture deals. And by that, I mean that you assume success. The reason you go from the first Justice League movie where Ms. Hurd played Mira the first time, the reason you more than double her salary is you assume success. So you've already built in the bonus that Ms. Arnold was referring to, a renegotiation, if you will, for the third movie. Instead of doubling her salary, Ms. Arnold said it would only be fair to quadruple her salary. And that's just not the way these idiosyncratic contracts work. They're a very small portion of the contracts we deal with. Are you familiar with Ms. Arnold's opinion that Ms. Hurd's salary for Aquaman 2 could have been renegotiated to around four million dollars? I am. Do you agree with that opinion? No. Why not? Well, as I've said, that would now be after a healthy first payday. It's more than doubled, and now it would be quadrupled. That's not the way it happens. Walter Hamada, who is the president of that part of the studio, said it doesn't happen. They're not going to do it. Ms. Arnold, for some substance, says, well, Jason Momoa got to do it, but she doesn't give us any of the details. We know that Jason Momoa was in a movie before the Justice League. He played Aquaman in a movie not with Ms. Mira in that movie. So he had a history before the first movie with Amber Hurd. He played Aquaman. We don't know what his contract, the state of it was when you got to Aquaman 2, and she says, unsupported, that he renegotiated. We're not sure what he renegotiated to, but I can say that at the end of the option period, when you've only got one option left, and you want that star in more movies, you may renegotiate, but it's not a gratuity. It's 
we'll give you more for the last option if you'll give us three more options. Uh, it's a give and take. And unfortunately, Ms. Arnold didn't give us any of that background uh, or those building blocks. And then I think yesterday she said, and the other actors renegotiated. And again, we don't know their salary history. We don't know their contracts. We don't know anything uh, except she's asking you just to believe her as what I refer to as a, a professional expert. Are you aware that Ms. Arnold's opined that but for the alleged defamatory statements by Mr. Waldman, Ms. Hurd would have earned $45 million in the last 18 months and then the next three to five years? Yes, I am. Um, I'd like to address some of the components of that um, one by one with you, Mr. Marks. Are you familiar with her testimony that Ms. Hurd would continue to make films um, for approximately $4 million each following Aquaman 2? Yes. Do you agree with that testimony? No. Why not? Well, again, in Aquaman 2, uh, uh, Amber Heard has already had this huge increase. She worked on Aquaman 2 for $2 million. What uh, Ms. Arnold is saying is, oh, she should have worked on it for $4 million, uh, which I disagree with, and I, I don't – I think there's, there is reasons to negotiate. They weren't here in this case. So the $4 million I have a disagreement with. But even if it was at four million, or if it was at two million, the the four or five movies that uh, Miss Heard might get might be independent movies. They may might be standalone studio movies. They might be passion projects. Every actor has a, has yeah, a, a quiver full of quotes, and their highest quote is for the superhero. Um, fantasy, uh, a journey, uh, their lowest quote might be for the independent passion project where they'll, they'll defer their salary and almost take nothing to work, just SAG minimum. Uh, and uh, to assume that she'd get four or five more movies at this, her last fantasy quote would be to assume that those are also those type of movies playing another character. And uh, Ms. Arnold says that, that uh, Ms. Hurd's breakout moment, her, her star is born moment, is Christmas 2018. If that's true, and I don't think it's true, those moments no, don't normally happen to supporting cast, but if it's true, as a deal maker, you would expect if you represent a producer's production companies, to flock in, to take advantage of this hot star and to sign them up. And we have from Christmas 2018 to spring 20 where there, there is none of this activity. The, the stars born phenomena didn't happen. Uh, Miss Heard starred in one series of eight episodes and she earned a healthy fee, $200,000 an episode. But that's five times less than the million uh, Miss Arnold is tossing out, supposedly based on Jason Momoa's quote. She doesn't prove it or, or give us facts. And Jason Momoa is not a comparable actor. He's been in a series where they shot 78 episodes 
44 episodes, 21 episodes. He played Conan the Barbarian. He was in Game of Thrones. It's not a comparable. All right, I'll sustain the objection. Next question. Mr. Marks, we'll get to some of those issues in a moment, but I want to take you back for a second. I believe you testified a few minutes ago that your understanding is that the last option in a multi-picture deal might be renegotiated under some circumstances. Do you have an understanding of whether Aquaman 2 was the last option in Ms. Hurd's contract with Warner Brothers? Oh, no, no. Aquaman 2 has not even been released, and Warner Brothers has a fourth option for Aquaman 3 or another movie where Mira appears, that character, and they've agreed to double the salary again. So it's in success, and that assumes that they recast and that they make the movie. Are you aware of Ms. Arnold's testimony that Ms. Hurd would have made several million dollars on endorsement deals, such as the one she had with L'Oreal? I'm aware of that testimony. Do you agree with that opinion? No. Why not? Again, this is a business of personalities. We didn't, after the breakout moment that Ms. Arnold talked about, Christmas 2018, we didn't see endorsement deals flocking to Ms. Hurd during that 16-month period before Adam Waldman made a few statements in the London Daily Mail, I believe it was. We didn't see those endorsements coming to her. What Ms. Arnold shows you is these non-comparable actors, they had endorsement deals, but she doesn't show you when she describes the breakout moment and why she's comparing Amber Hurd to these, what I call, uncomparable actors, but she's making the comparison. She's saying, well, they had all these deals, why wouldn't she? But for the statements that happened 16 months later, and I guess my primary question is what happened in the 16 months, even if you believe three statements in the Daily Mail are the stake through the heart of this Stars Born moment. Do you have an opinion about Ms. Arnold's testimony that Ms. Hurd would have made $1 million an episode in a couple of streaming series following a Stars Born moment? Yes, I heard it. I have an opinion. What's your opinion? Well, after Aquaman 1, this is a major coup. Amber Hurd got that role. She tested for it. She could have been the other 19 actresses or 10 or whoever else tested, didn't get it. She got the role, and she got her salary doubled for Aquaman 1 to $1 million. Now, Ms. Arnold wants you to believe that that $1 million would translate into, she'd get that for each episode of a series. We know what she got for a series. She got a series in that period after Christmas 2018, before spring of 2020. She got a series. It was eight episodes, and it was $200,000 an episode. And Ms. Arnold is from somewhere in a glib way saying she got a couple series and a million each. And I can tell you as someone in the trenches, 
Rarely, rarely does an actor get a million dollars for a series episode. And again, in those 16 months, there were no offers for series at a million dollars an episode. In fact, her only series is the $200,000. And if you look at her resume, the series that Ms. Hurd were in, I think the longest one ran eight episodes. Jason Momoa, if you were to believe Ms. Arnold and somehow Jason Momoa's agent broke their confidentiality in the agreement and he had a series at a million dollars an episode, if you're to believe that, Jason Momoa has had a series with 78 episodes, with 44 episodes, with 21 episodes, with 18 episodes, with 21 episodes. Again, there's not a comparableness there. We spoke a few minutes ago about the test option agreement. What's the significance of the option part of that agreement? The option part of the agreement gives the employer, the studio, the option. They don't have to do anything. They have an option to either employ you at a very healthy salary to play this role or not. They can recast the superhero role. You just have to think of how many actors have played Batman or Superman. They can do what they want. And indeed, since there's no contract, they only have a choice to exercise their option or not. They might say, we're not exercising unless you reduce your compensation. Who knows what the negotiation would be? But it's not a contract until the studio exercises the option and they don't have to. What's the alternative to an option agreement? Well, the alternative is most agreements in Hollywood, you're hired to play the role. Or once you exercise the option, then it becomes, for that picture, an agreement like others in Hollywood. You are now hired to play that role. So most contracts are guaranteed. You're hired to play the role. In an option agreement, once they exercise the option, for that movie, it becomes a guaranteed contract. Are you aware that Ms. Arnold testified that Ms. Hurd was released from her Aquaman 2 contract and then subsequently rehired? I heard that testimony. Is that consistent with your experience in the film industry in connection with these multi-option contracts? No. Why not? Again, studios don't do things they don't have to do. As we heard Mr. Hamada, the president of the studio, say, you either exercise your option or you don't. They exercise their option. He denied releasing and then rehiring. And in my experience, in almost five decades in the business, doing this type of work, not talking about it, not consulting. I mean, I have, you know, I heard Ms. Arnold say she'd been an expert a hundred times. I'm a transactional lawyer. I do this occasionally. Basically, you know, it's not a contract until they option it. And 
and they pick up their option. And at that point, it's a guaranteed contract, and then different rules apply to it. In your experience in the industry, do studios typically comment on those types of actions that they're taking with respect to options? No. Just like Mr. Hamada said, they don't need to comment on it. They either exercise the option or they don't. In Hollywood, silence is the default. You play no card before it's time. And the cards there were exercise the option or not. And I was surprised by Mr. Hamada under oath basically saying that there was this discussion of chemistry. That objection, Your Honor, you're saying? I think it was an in-court statement this morning, I believe, Your Honor. That's fine. It's the same hearsay that you were – it's hearsay like yesterday. I mean, it's hearsay. Overruled objection. Go ahead. Thank you. I didn't hear. Go ahead, sir. Overruled. You can continue, Mr. Hamada. I was surprised to hear Mr. Hamada say that they talked about chemistry. That would normally be behind closed doors because it can't help your relationship with the actor. You're either going to exercise or not. And that was quite a bit of candor from someone at his level. And so, therefore, I take it at face value. I think he felt that he was under oath and he was telling the truth. But it wouldn't be – Objection, Your Honor. I'll sustain the objection. Mr. Marks, are there circumstances where a studio would be more likely to say something about not using an actor again in a franchise? Yes. What are those circumstances? Once they've exercised the option, once the contract is guaranteed, the studio still has the right to pay the actor but not play them, pay or play them. And that is a rare condition because you've hired the actor, you've got to pay them, but you say, go home, we're recasting. In that situation, after you've exercised the option and the contract is guaranteed, if you pay off the actor, that's normally commented on. That becomes a bit of information because it's not normal. Is that circumstance different from Ms. Hurd's contract with Warner Brothers for the Aquaman movies? Oh, yeah. Ms. Hurd's contract, again, it was just an option. Either we exercise it or we don't. And if we exercise it, she's in the film. If we don't, she's not. Until we exercise it, we have our right to recast or not make the movie. And even after we exercise it, we still have a right to recast and not make the movie. We just have to pay her salary. Do you understand that Ms. Arnold compares Ms. Hurd's career trajectory with that of other actors, including Jason Momoa, Gal Gadot, Zendaya, Ana de Armas, and Chris Pine? I heard that. And what's your opinion of those actors as comparables for Ms. Hurd? Even Ms. Hurd's agent, Jessica Kaye, said that four of those actors weren't comparable. Objection, Your Honor. 
I believe the same response, Your Honor, that it was in testimony that was played in court earlier this week. That's not what she testified to. I mean, he's characterizing testimony that was from days ago, and I don't even think she testified to that, Your Honor. You can cross-examine over and over. You may continue, Mr. Harris. Again, they are not comparable. Jason Momoa was Aquaman. Chris Pine was Captain Kirk. Gal Gadot was Wonder Woman. Zendaya has been working on Disney Channel since she was 13. She's in all the Spider-Man movies. She goes by one name. Anna de Armas, you know, when she was in a movie that they call, you know, her breakout, it was as a nude poster. She's been an ensemble piece, Knives Out. These are not comparables. Now, Ms. Arnold stuck to Jason Momoa, who is the most non-comparable because of his history and his career, but she didn't give us the advantage of telling us what his contracts were, what he renegotiated to, what he earned. She didn't give us any of those building blocks. She just created, she set him up as a comparable and then said what Ms. Hurd should earn, but she never gave us the salary of Jason Momoa or the other comparables. And she built like this house of cards on nothing. You know, she showed us with her words the beautiful clothing that the emperor was wearing, but we could see, if you know the business, that he wasn't. Beyond the scope of the question. All right. I'll sustain the objection. Next question. Okay. You were just speaking about Mr. Momoa as a comparable. Are you aware that Ms. Arnold compares Ms. Hurd to Mr. Momoa as an actor with equivalent franchise experience who was able to renegotiate his salary for significant increases in bonus? Yes. What's your response to that opinion? Again, he didn't have comparable franchise experience to Ms. Hurd. He was Conan the Barbarian. He played Aquaman in a movie that Amber Hurd was not in. He played Aquaman, not a supporting character like Mira. It's just not comparable. And you can say the words, but I saw nothing from Ms. Arnold to back it up, something to build on, which if she was a negotiator in the trench, the studio negotiator would say, okay, so show us. Where's the comps? Let's talk numbers, because ultimately that's where we have to get to, not just because you say it so. We just don't believe you. You've got to show us. In your experience in the industry, what factors influence the negotiation of the terms of a film agreement with an actor? Well, I mean, first it depends on the film. If the film is a million-dollar movie and everybody's deferring their salaries, that's one thing. If it's a superhero movie, that's another. But for dealmakers and negotiators, the best predictor of what the deal should be is past earnings, precedent, comps. You also look at the budget of the movie, what it can bear. 
because if Jason Momoa's comp is $10 million, but the budget's $10 million, obviously he has another price for that movie. But the best predictor of future earnings is past earnings. And I didn't see any, Ms. Arnold talked about past earnings at all, except the earnings in this rarefied superhero four-picture deal where instead of incremental increases, which you normally see, it was multiples increases. And then when you get on a series, the big renegotiation was when the network has no more options. Until then, the actors on the series get 5, 10, 15, small percentage raises. They don't get multiples. They get the multiples if it's a success and the studio wants to continue making the series and they want to keep these characters. That's when the renegotiation happens. Here, even if we believe Ms. Arnold, after Aquaman 2, there was still an option waiting at a big price, double the previous payday. What's the significance of the timing of the Waldman statements to the opportunities Ms. Arnold claims Ms. Hurd lost? Well, the argument as I understand it is that Ms. Arnold says that Ms. Hurd lost all these opportunities because those losses were caused by Adam Waldman's statements 16 months later. So I think the timing... Mr. Marks, what's your overall assessment of Ms. Arnold's opinions in this case? My overall assessment of her opinions is that they're not worth the paper they're not written on. She knows something about our business, but not about negotiating deals. She may have gotten someone at the Endeavor office to breach confidentiality, but she never laid out the building blocks. Objection, you have to stop talking, Mr. Marks. Thank you. Beyond the scope. Mr. Marks, can you just limit your testimony to your opinion about Ms. Arnold's opinions, please? My opinion as someone who's made deals as a deal maker for almost 50 years is that she calls herself an expert, but she's not. She doesn't have the background. She doesn't have the day-to-day knowledge. And her testimony that I heard did not back up her bottom line. 
If you want to get those figures, you have to show why they're deserved. And again, she was constructing a Jenga without the bottom pieces. It does not hold up under scrutiny by someone who makes deals. No further questions. All right, cross-examination. Good morning, Mr. Marks. Good morning. So you agree that studios use comps to negotiate deals, correct, with actors? Sometimes they do. And you have an issue with the comps that Ms. Arnold used, correct, as you testified to? I have an issue with the comps that she says she used that she didn't disclose. The comps being the actors that you just talked about. She did disclose, I mean, she disclosed the actors. She disclosed the actors and budget figures from their movies. She never disclosed their salaries and salary history as comps. You're not offering a different set of comparators that should be used, correct? I'm saying if you are going to... That's not my question. Are you offering a different set of comparators than what Ms. Arnold used? I'm not here offering comparators. I'm saying what she offered are not comparators. That was my question. You're not offering comparators, correct? No. I would say that Ms. Hurd's comparisons are where you are. That was my question. Motion to strike after the... All right. We'll strike after that. Just answer the questions, Mr. Marks. Thank you. You're a deal maker, correct? Yes. What actors have you negotiated for in superhero movies? Well, recently I've negotiated for Chris Pratt in a superhero series for Amazon. I've negotiated a deal for Michael Douglas, not in a superhero movie, but a historical movie. I've negotiated recently a deal for Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell on an Apple series. Billy Crudup on an Apple series. Those are the recent talent deals. What actors have you negotiated for in a superhero movie? As I sit here now, I can't remember a superhero movie that I've negotiated. I've certainly negotiated over my career franchise movies and fantasy movies. Your Honor, so it's no, you haven't negotiated for any actors for superhero movies, correct? So you would define like, I don't know, Jungle Book isn't a superhero movie. It's more of a fantasy. No, correct. So as I sit here, I can't think of a Marvel-type superhero movie that I've negotiated, although I know there's one or two in there. Now, you testified and you agree that Mr. Momoa negotiated his multi-picture contract for Aquaman 2, correct? I heard Mr. Hamada say there was a renegotiation, but no facts were pro-offered, such as 
he didn't have an option. His options were out. What he was earning and what he renegotiated to, and he is Aquaman Man. So, yes, I did hear there was a renegotiation. And you understand that his salary went from $3 to $4 million to $15 million. If you tell me that, I haven't seen his contract and I haven't heard any testimony under oath that that's where the leap was. Now, Ms. Hurd's contract... Did they get more options? When they made that leap, did they get more options? Ms. Hurd's contract was a talent option contract, correct? Yes. Okay. And you agree that for the... If there's an Aquaman 3, Ms. Hurd would have an option to receive $4 million, correct, for the movie? Well, actually, you would language it. Warner Brothers would have the option to engage her. And if they engaged her, she would receive $4 million, correct? She doesn't have the option to refuse. They have the option to engage her. And she would receive $4 million, correct? Yes, $4 million. Would you agree that the money Amber was making on Aquaman 2 or 3 would be her market rate for future studio movies? I would think it would be her rate for future studio superhero movies, but not necessarily studio movies that aren't superheroes. That could be standalone. That could be other type of studio movies. But for studio superhero movies, it would be $4 million, correct? If I was Ms. Hurd's agent, that's where I would start. Assuming everything was equal, the budget of the superhero movie, that she was in the ensemble. There's a lot of ifs to look at, but all things being equal. You agree that Aquaman was a breakthrough role for Ms. Hurd, wasn't it? It's the first movie of that ilk that she makes, but she is not Aquaman. She is Mira. But it was a breakthrough movie for Ms. Hurd, correct? For her, it's a breakthrough movie to be in that film and in the ensemble, absolutely. And she was the female star of that movie, correct? I believe so. You would agree that for all of the actors Ms. Arnold listed as comparables, their career trajectory went up after their breakthrough, correct? She didn't give us the raw materials to look at, but I'll take your word that all those unrelated actors in unrelated films, except for Jason Momoa, they went up. As did Ms. Arnold when she went from one to two. In your experience, can you identify an actor or an actress who's not been able to get a new studio movie after a breakthrough performance in a superhero movie? As I sit here now, I haven't been asked to opine on that, but there are lots of supporting characters in movies that don't appear in the next movie. But a female star in a breakthrough movie in a superhero movie, can you identify any actress who's not gotten another studio movie after that? Well, after Ms. Hurd's breakthrough in 2018, she did get Aquaman 2. Aquaman 2 was already, she already had the option for Aquaman 2, correct? Ms. Hurd did not get any movies after 2018, long before the Adam Waldman statement. Other than Ms. Hurd, can you identify any actor or actress who's not gotten another studio movie after their breakthrough in a superhero movie? As I sit here now, I haven't been asked to research that, and I can't. 
That okay. would be a normal uh, a thing. And you're you're not providing an alternative number for Ms. Hurd's damages, correct, for the jury? Correct. I'm not uh, providing an alternative number. I think, uh, you know, she's been more than uh, adequately paid. I'd move to strike after no, I've not been provided another number. That's all. I mean, my question was you're not providing another number. I think it's in fairness and the full answer of the question, Your Honor. It was a it was a yes or no question. He said his answer was no. I'm not going to strike it. Okay. All right. No further questions. All right. Redirect. Um, Mr. Marks, uh, in response to some questions from Mr. Nadehack, you were um, discussing some franchise and fantasy uh, movie agreements that you've negotiated with uh, actors. Could you just describe some of those for us? I, you know, I've had such a long career that I mainly forget what I've done, but I negotiated all the contracts for uh, uh, Pinocchio, if you will, that was produced, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, is coming to America the, the original? Is is that a fantasy movie? The Golden Child is that a fantasy movie? Uh, uh, yeah, and and by the way, I may have negotiated contracts, uh, and ultimately the film wasn't made. Uh, but as I sit here now, uh, those are the only ones that come to pass. If I was looking at my my resume or uh, going through my files, I might think of others, but there isn't a deal that I haven't made. And I think you also um, testified in response to Mr. Nadelhaft's questions that you um, have negotiated some deals for um, Chris Pratt and Paul Rudd. Do you recall that testimony? Yes, these are for a streaming series. Do you happen to know if both of those actors have played Marvel superheroes? I believe uh, uh, they they have, but don't quote me because, you know, that's not my genre. Okay. Uh, no further questions, Your Honor. All right. Thank you, Mr. Marks. You can uh, you're free to stay in the courtroom, or or you can leave. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Your next witness. Plaintiff calls Michael Spindler. Michael Spindler. Testified previously, correct, Mr. Spindler? All right. Just a reminder that you're still under oath. Okay, sir? Yes. All right. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Spindler. Good morning. Uh, Can you remind the jury who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm Michael Spindler. I'm a forensic accountant. I'm a CPA, a certified fraud examiner, amongst some other certifications. I'm uh, with uh, B. Riley Advisory Services, a national firm that does forensic accounting, bankruptcy and restructuring work, and business uh, valuations and appraisals. I've got over 40 years of experience. Are you familiar with the testimony rendered by Ms. Arnold in this matter? Yes, I am. Do you understand that Ms. Arnold testified that Ms. Hurd has suffered economic damages resulting from three statements made by Mr. Waldman? Yes, I do. Do you have an opinion of that claim? I do. All right.
Thanks, Mr. Spindler. Now, you indicated that you would listen to Ms. Arnold, and she testified on behalf of Ms. Hurd relative to economic damages. Have you formed an opinion as to the testimony and opinion rendered by Ms. Arnold? Yes, I have. And what's that opinion? It is not adequately supported, and it is unreasonable. There were multiple elements to that analysis, both damages related to her film career and to endorsements. Have you analyzed both those issues? Yes, I have. What is your opinion of the claims that have been asserted relative to the film career and endorsements? Okay. Well, first of all, with respect to her damages calculation, there was no calculation, per se. She initially looked at these comparable actors and seemed to use that as a basis for numbers. She didn't provide the underlying calculation. She didn't provide underlying support. And then it appeared as though in her testimony she backed away a little bit from that, but she still suffers from the issues of not providing detailed calculations or support for where those numbers come from. And she still, to some extent, appears to be using some kind of comparable analysis. All right. What is the type of analysis that you think is appropriate here? Well, I think, and as you heard from the last witness, I think that something that is anchored in facts, taking a look at historical compensation as a basis for anticipating future compensation. Had you looked at Ms. Hurd's prior compensation? Yes, I have. I've looked at tax returns that were provided for the period of 2013 through 2019. Why do you want to use historical earnings? Well, once again, you want an analysis that's anchored in fact. I don't believe that Ms. Arnold has done that in her analysis. So here we've got some actual data. We've got some historical compensation. And as the last witness mentioned, that often provides somewhat of a basis for future anticipated earnings. In addition, I believe that Ms. Arnold herself said that she had hoped to be able to look at a renegotiated salary for Aquaman 2 and then use that as a basis for future compensation, that being the new kind of base, if you will. All right. Were there any years in particular that you focused on in your analysis as to Ms. Arnold's testimony? In terms of the historical compensation? Yes. Well, for 2013 through 2019 in total, her compensation was around $10 million for all those years combined. In 2019, the last of those years, her compensation was somewhere between about $2.6 million and $3 million. Now, that's a good year. That's known as a clean year. What do you mean by a clean year? Well, for example, 2019, you had Aquaman was released in December of 2018, and that was a successful film. So in 2019, you've got the benefit of that kind of success, and you also don't have any 
potential impact from the alleged defamatory Waldman statements that occurred in April of 2020. So 2019 is clean of all that. What did you understand Ms. Arnold's methodology to be? Her methodology initially appeared to be based on these comparable actors that she had identified and theoretically the compensation that they earned. Although she doesn't identify what that compensation is or provide any support for it or any calculations. What is your opinion of that methodology from an accounting perspective? That methodology was unsound. It's just unsupported. There are no numbers. There's no data that she provided as support for that. What methodology did you understand Ms. Arnold to adopt at trial? Okay. Well, it looked like somewhat of a mix and match approach. She used different approaches, I believe, for different elements of the damages. Although it's still a little bit unclear to me, a little bit vague. But there are four basic components that she was looking at. And we can go through those in any order you wish. All right. With respect to the television series portion of her analysis, what do you understand that methodology to be? Okay. Objection, Your Honor. May we approach? All right.
the earnings from television shows. What was, did you analyze what historical earning Ms. Hurd had during the period that you were concerned with relative to television shows? Well, yes. During 2019, she entered into a contract in July of 2019 to appear in a television series at $200,000 per episode. All right. What about endorsement deals? Did you look at what she had made on endorsement deals during that period? She did have a contract with L'Oreal at $1,625,000. All right. With respect to her movie roles, what were her historical earnings during that period? Well, certainly for the most recent years, you had the Warner Brothers deal, which was a four-picture deal. The first film was $450,000. Then the first Aquaman was $1 million fee, base fee. Then $2 million for Aquaman 2. And presuming that there was an Aquaman 3, that would have been $4 million. Okay. Why do you look at historical earnings as part of your analysis? Because you want your analysis to be anchored in facts. You want it to have a sound methodology, and you want to come up with a reasonable result. So if you take a look at, for example, the analysis that Ms. Arnold did, it didn't appear to be... Let's just look at the analysis that you're doing. So what you said, I think, is you wanted them anchored in facts. Why? Because that provides a sound basis for coming up with something with reasonable certainty. There's AICPA, or American Institute of Certified Public Accountant, guidance with respect to reasonable certainty. And those are the basic elements of it. Thank you. No further questions. All right. Cross-examination. Hello again, Mr. Spindler. Good morning. I'm going to ask you a few questions that may refer to the statements in Amber's counterclaim against Mr. Depp. When I refer to those statements, I'm going to refer to them as the Depp-Waldman statements. Do you agree that we can both be on the same page what I'm referring to when I say that? That's fine. You can use your terminology. I'm sorry. There's an objection, sir. Can we approach? Okay.
So, Mr. Spindler, when I refer to the Depp Waldman statements, you understand me to be referring to the statements in Ms. Hurd's counterclaim against Mr. Depp, correct? I'll understand that, yes. Now, you're here to provide a rebuttal opinion to Ms. Arnold's, part of Ms. Arnold's testimony, correct? Correct. You're not providing opinion on whether Ms. Hurd saw Mr. Depp, correct? That is true. You're not offering an opinion as to any of the underlying facts relating to whether Mr. Depp abused Amber, correct? That's correct. You're not offering an opinion as to the magnitude of damages that you believe Ms. Hurd may be entitled to if she proves defamation by Mr. Depp. You're just reviewing what Ms. Arnold has said, correct? That's correct. And you said that you want your analysis to be accurate in the facts, right? Anchored in facts. Anchored in facts. You'd agree that what an actor earns in one period isn't necessarily reflective of what he or she may earn in future periods, correct? Correct. And that's because an increase in the number of roles may lead to greater income, correct? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I was speaking, I didn't hear. One of the reasons that what you earn in one period may not be reflective of what an actress may earn in future periods is because an increase in the number of roles may lead to greater income, correct? The number of roles or the particular project itself, yes. Sure, getting better roles may lead to greater income, correct? Correct. And the same is true for an endorsement. As an actress's profile grows, the amount of money that she may be able to earn from endorsements grows as well, correct? It can. It depends. So what Ms. Hurd earned from, say, 2013 to 2019 that you testified to isn't necessarily reflective of what she might earn over the next five years, correct? Not necessarily. It is a good indicator, though. And you'd agree that from 2013 to 2019, in terms of earnings and star power, that Ms. Hurd's career trajectory was on the upswing, correct? There was a slight increase during that period of time in her earnings from 2013 through 2019. And you'd agree that that was as a result of getting more lucrative roles, right? Yes. Now, you're not a causation expert, right? You're just a damages expert? That's correct. So you're not testifying as to whether the Depp-Waldman statements caused her to lose any roles, correct? That's correct. And you're not offering any opinion as to whether the Depp-Waldman statements kept her from being considered for roles that she otherwise would have been considered for, correct? That's correct. I'm not testifying on causation issues. And you can't speak to what opportunities may never have materialized for Amber as a result of the Depp-Waldman statements, correct? Yeah, I've not done those calculations. And you don't have an opinion about whether or not Ms. Hurd could have renegotiated a contract for Aquaman 2, correct? That was not part of my work. And you don't have an opinion on the impact that additional exposure or press coverage or magazine covers or interviews would have had on Ms. Hurd's career, correct? Correct. I'm just looking at Ms. Arnold's calculations. You've never served as an expert witness before to calculate damages based on lost roles by an actress resulting from defamation against that person, correct? I've been involved in defamation cases, but I've not done the calculations as an expert witness and testified there too. And there's never been an instance in which you have served as an expert witness in a case to calculate damages based on alleged defamation against an actress, correct? Correct. 
And you're not offering any expert opinion on what impact the alleged defamation by Mr. Depp has had on Ms. Hurd's career, correct? I'm sorry, one more time? You're not offering any expert opinion on what impact the Depp-Waldman statements by Mr. Depp has had on Ms. Hurd's career, correct? Other than taking a look at Ms. Arnold's calculations. And you're not offering any expert opinion about what impact, if any, social media coverage of this case or of Ms. Hurd may have had on Ms. Hurd's career, correct? Correct. That's other experts. Can we approach her? No further questions. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you, Ms. Finley. You can have a seat in the courtroom or you're free to go. Thank you. All right. Your next witness. Plaintiff calls Doug Banya, Your Honor. Okay. Can you spell the last name for me? B-A-N-I-A. So just a reminder that you're still under oath. Okay, sir. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Banya. Good afternoon. Can you briefly reintroduce yourself to the jury, please? Yes. Hi, Doug Banya. I am from Nevium Intellectual Property Consultants based in San Diego. I value intellectual property. I provide litigation support in infringement and defamation cases, as I'm doing today. And I use Internet and social media analytics and both of those services. Since you last testified in this case, the jury has heard testimony from Ronald Schnell and Catherine Arnold. Are you familiar with their testimony? Yes. Were you asked to analyze their testimony and provide opinions in response? Yes, I was. Have you formed opinions in response to the testimony of Mr. Schnell and Ms. Arnold? I have. Generally, what are those opinions? Generally, Mr. Schnell provided no evidence of a correlation between the Waldman statements and the hashtags and the spikes of those hashtags on Twitter. Second, based on my Internet and social media analytics investigation, I've concluded that the alleged comparable actors that Ms. Arnold came up with are not comparable with Ms. Hurd. And then thirdly, Mr. Schnell and Ms. Arnold both failed to provide any evidence of a causation as it relates to the Waldman statements causing any economic harm to Ms. Hurd. Let's dig into those opinions a little bit. You're familiar with the testimony of Mr. Schnell that there are more than 2.7 million alleged negative tweets related to Ms. Hurd between January 2018 and June 2021? 
Yes. And what's your understanding of how Mr. Schnell identified those particular 2.7 million tweets? Yeah, so essentially Mr. Schnell um, chose hashtags that he felt were negative uh, towards Ms. Heard. Uh, those hashtags uh, range from uh, justice for Johnny Depp, um, Amber Heard is an abuser, Amber Turd, and the hashtag, uh, we just don't like you, Amber. So then he used those hashtags and he searched through, using the Twitter API, uh, searched through various tweets and then came up with any uh, uh, tweets that were using those hashtags. Did you conduct an analysis of those tweets? Yes, I was given that exact, uh, uh, the data that Mr. Schnell used on a hard drive. So yes, I, I, I dug into that data as well. And what was the purpose of your analysis? So what I'm trying to do and what's at issue of the case today, uh, today at this point is, you know, were these tweets, did they contain the Waldman statements? That, that's what we're, where we're at right now, are the Waldman statements. So I wanted to analyze those tweets to determine uh, which ones and if any uh, contain the Waldman statements. And what's your understanding of what the Waldman statements are? So my understanding is there the three, there's three Waldman statements that were published uh, in the Daily Mail. Uh, the Daily Mail is a, a, a UK tabloid, and um, Mr. Um, Arnold um, was quoted in, the, in three of those articles, um, and those dates were on April 8th, 2020, uh, April 27th, 2020, and on June 24th, 2020. And my understanding that those quotes um, those quotes, I, 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 sorry, I think I said the wrong name, but those quotes uh, are the only uh, remaining uh, in this case. Did you analyze the timing of the tweets that we were talking about as compared to the timing of the Waldman statements? And that's exactly what I did. So I wanted to look at the Walden statements, look at the dates uh, that they happened, and then analyze those as it compared to the Twitter data that I had. Have you prepared a demonstrative that reflects that aspect of your analysis? Yes. Um, your Honor, may I approach? Yes. Please. Please, Counsel. So 1293 will just be marked for identification as demonstrative and can be published to the jury. Mr. Binder, can you explain to the jury what this demonstrative shows? Yes. Um, so this shows um, the total hashtags and tweets 
that Mr. Schnell was analyzing. This is the summary data that there are tweets that are running from January 2018 to June of 2021. And again, these are related to the four hashtags that I discussed. Whenever I get an assignment such as this, when I'm dealing with a defamatory statement that's allegedly gone viral online, where there's economic damages involved and there's a lot of data involved, I like to take the data and I like to do a 30,000-foot view of the data to see what I'm looking at, to see if there's anything interesting, odd, different about the data. And the first thing that I noticed is 35% of the tweets were prior to the Waldman statements. So again, remember, my assignment is to determine if the Waldman statements are part of the tweets that Mr. Schnell analyzed. So obviously, if these tweets were prior to the Waldman statements, in no way could they have anything to do with the Waldman statements. So that was the first issue that I noticed. Then I noticed what I like to call kind of the alleged defamatory time frame. And as I discussed, that's when the Waldman statements were published. That's the date down here. The first one was in the beginning of April, and the last one, which is the third one, was at the end of June. But what I found interesting is only 2% of all of the tweets happened during this Waldman statement period. So really, these are just observations. And for me, there were red flags that I made note of, and then I just continued with my analysis. What other work could be performed in connection with forming your opinions about the purportedly negative tweets? Yeah, so now I realize that 35% are irrelevant and 2% only happened during this important period. I just continued to dig into the 2.79 million tweets that Mr. Schnell provided. And Tom, can we take that one down? And Mr. Bonney, have you prepared another demonstrative that depicts that analysis that you were just describing? Yes. I'll give you time to look at it, sir. All right, plaintiffs. Microphone, sorry. No objection as a demonstrative. Okay. All right, plaintiffs, Exhibit 1294 will be marked for identification as a demonstrative and will be published to the jury. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Bonney, can you explain what this demonstrative shows? Yes, this is showing the various spikes as it relates to the hashtags that Mr. Schnell testified about. This is actually an edit or a demonstrative that he used in his testimony. What this is showing are the largest spikes related to the hashtag Justice for Johnny Depp. 
I don't know if you remember his testimony or any of his demonstratives. The other three hashtags did spike at the same time, but a very small spike. So what I'm showing you here are the six top spikes in Mr. Schnell's analysis. And what's important here, again, is the very first spike and the largest spike, again, happened before the Waldman statements. So what I'm trying to figure out is what tweets were related to the Waldman statements. So this number one spike, which is the biggest spike, was prior to the Waldman statements. So it's irrelevant to the case. And then the second thing I noticed that was interesting here is here are the dates in gray right here. This is the time in which the Waldman statements happened. And you're going to notice, as we discussed before, only 2% of the tweets happened during that time. But I found it very interesting for such a viral event that has potentially caused such economic harm, there's no spikes in this area. And actually, you're going to see that Mr. Waldman, you know, his statement came out here in the first April 2020 article. Then the second one came out here. And then the third one came out in June. There's actually a downward use of the spike, downward use of the hashtags. So I'm not seeing any correlation as it relates to the Waldman statements and any spikes here as it relates to the hashtags Mr. Schnell chose. Did you analyze each of the spikes that are depicted here? Yeah. So what I did is I looked at the six different spikes. And you're going to notice that each spike represents a month. So the second spike, you know, is July 2020 and so on to the sixth spike going to April 2021. And what I did is, I don't know if you remember my last testimony when I went into Google search. And I'm able to go into Google search. I went in and I typed in Amber Heard. And then after you hit search, you can use the tool and you can go back in time. And I chose each six of these dates to go back in time to see what was the media talking about back then. You know, what was the general public being fed as it relates to Amber Heard back during those spikes? And what I found is none of them, well, actually I analyzed the top three search results because they represent 50 to 70 percent of what people click on. And I realized that none of them had anything to do with the Waldman statements. Are you aware of Mr. Schnell's testimony that the tweets using the four hashtags he looked at were mathematically correlated? Yes. What does that mean? So what Mr. Schnell is saying, which is irrelevant to this case, is the four hashtags that he randomly chose, they tend to go up and down together. And that's why he had these spikes here. So the correlation there is how those four hashtags work or dance together going up and down. But first of all, the hashtags have nothing to do with the Waldman statements. And the fact that there's a correlation with the hashtags is irrelevant to this case because we're dealing with the Waldman statements, which none of that correlation analysis he did had to do with. How do you know that the correlation doesn't have anything to do with the Waldman statements? Can I clear this at all? No. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I know because that would happen right here. 
you know, if, if, if when uh, Mr. Walden, one of his quotes was published, you would see a big spike right here. And then you would see maybe a little noise down here. And then the third time you might see a big, second time a big spike and the third time a big spike. That's not here. So that's telling me there's no correlation between the Waldman statements and, and this hashtag use. And then I've actually provided evidence that there's no correlation because I analyzed each of these spikes and none of them had to do with the Waldman statements. Is mathematical correlation the same as causation? No. Why not? I mean, uh, correlation is simply a relationship between uh, two or more variables or two or more things. Uh, in this case, uh, the, the correlation question is, did when, when, when the um, Waldman statements were published, at the same time, did you see a correlation with spikes in these hashtags? And again, you, can we clear this? You, you see none of that right here. It's actually a downward trend. There's no spikes, there's no correlation. So, you know, again, Mr. Schnell proved, provided no evidence of any correlation. What correlation opinion did he provide during his testimony? Well, he provided the correlation that the four hashtags, you know, spiked together. But again, A, the hashtags have nothing to do with the Waldman statements. And the fact that they're correlating or moving together is irrelevant to the case because the case is about the Waldman statements. So what is causation then? So causation is where one thing causes a change in the other. So as it relates to this case, did the Waldman statements cause Ms. Heard to have economic harm? In other words, did the Waldman statements cause Ms. Heard not to make as much money in her career? And again, Mr. Schnell provided no evidence of this. Uh, Ms. Arnold provided no evidence of this. And as a matter of fact, during Ms. Arnold's testimony yesterday, she didn't even know what causation was. You know, she was asked, do you know the difference between causation and correlation? And she said that she's not a semantics expert. We're, we're not talking about the words. You know, when it comes to damages, you have to prove causation prior to calculating damages. You know, so there is no causation that's proven here. Therefore, a damages uh, analysis is not appropriate. Did you hear Mr. Schnell testify that he agreed with your opinion in this case? Yes. And what's your understanding of the opinion that he agreed with? Well, he agreed that he failed to link the spikes in the uh, hashtags on Twitter to the Waldman statements. Did he try to do that? He Well, he tried to do that. But again, well, again, his analysis was looking at the word Waldman and looking at the word Waldminian and then trying to say that 25% of the tweets included those two terms. But first of all, Waldman isn't the issue here. It's the Waldman statements. And Waldminian, I don't even know what that is, but it's not relevant to this case. We can, I think, take that one down, please, Tom. Mr. Banya, what other work have you done in connection with forming your opinions about Mr. Schnell's testimony? Again, the assignment was to determine if the Waldman statements were part of the, the tweet. So I continued to dig in, uh, you know, to the data. Uh, 
I believe the next step is now that I've excluded, you know, the 35% that was before the Waldman statements because they were irrelevant, I wanted to really analyze from the April 2020 forward to see if any of those tweets, you know, contained the Waldman statements. Did you prepare a demonstrative that reflects that analysis that you did? Yes, I did. Your Honor, may I approach again? All right. Yes, ma'am. Any objections, sir? No objection as a demonstrative. All right. We'll mark it for identification as plaintiff's 1295 as demonstrative and publish the material. So, Mr. Bonian, did you consider the content of the statements made by Waldman as part of the work that you did? Yes. Yes, so here I reviewed the Waldman statements again. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to determine what, if any, tweets included the Waldman statements. So what I went, I went back to the Waldman statements and I came up with, you know, key terms and key themes for those Waldman statements, which are listed here. You know, the Waldman statements were about abuse hoax, sexual violence hoax, and fake sexual violence. So what I did is I, we're now dealing with a 1.2 million tweets because, you know, we're starting in April 2020 because that's when the Waldman statements started. And what I did is I searched the 1.2 million tweets, you know, for these three phrases. And I determined that there were 751 tweets that included those key terms, which is 0.06% of the 1.2 million. And then as I was sifting and sorting and analyzing this data, I realized that a lot of these tweets had the exact same language. You know, it was interesting to see it was the exact same tweet because I'm analyzing the language to see if it matches one of these three. I realized that a lot of these tweets were retweets, likes, or shares. So therefore, I eliminated any of those and it came down with 95 unique tweets. And then what I did from there is I analyzed those to determine if any of these terms were in there. And I identified five tweets that were related to the Waldman statements. Do any of the hashtags Mr. Schnell analyzed include the words from the Waldman statements? No, no, they don't. And, you know, because I am rebutting Ms. Arnold, you know, her testimony yesterday, she was saying that the Waldman statements caused these hashtags. Then throughout her testimony, she walked that back and admitted, no, none of these tweets have anything to do with the Waldman statements. They don't include the Waldman statements. You know, these hashtags are only hashtags that Schnell, in his opinion, felt that they were negative towards Ms. Heard. Based on your expertise, what are your overall opinions about Mr. Schnell's testimony and the Twitter hashtag data? You know, Mr. Schnell provided no evidence that any of the tweets were related to the Waldman statements. Mr. Schnell, there's no correlation there. He also provided no evidence that there's any causation that, you know, 
the Waldman statements caused any economic harm towards Ms. Hurd. Your Honor, I'm about to switch to a different topic. I don't know if you want to break now or push. All right. It's going to be a little while, I assume? A little bit more, yes. Okay. Let's go ahead and break for lunch, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Do not discuss the case and do not do any outside research, okay? All right, we'll come back at 140 then. Is that fine? All right, thank you, Your Honor. All right.